Hi, I want to welcome listeners to All Things Mental Health with Mike Bros, our podcast, and another episode. And of course, I want to thank Matt Gleason, who always helps us here on the podcast. And today's guest on All Things Mental Health with Mike Bros, Zach Stoikoff, who's the Executive Director of Healthy Minds. We're glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Mike. I'm excited. Yeah, very good. And of course, Zach, you and I have known each other before Healthy Minds ever existed. We worked together and and I want to, you know, before we get into Healthy Minds itself and how it came to be and what it is and what you guys are working on, I want to just give you a little bit of space here and time to talk about, you you know, where you're from and your background and how, what led up to you in your current position. It takes some just time to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thanks, Mike. That's my least favorite topic is me. So Zach Stoikoff, Executive Director of Healthy Minds Policy Initiative. But Mikey pointed out we knew each other before that. So my background is actually in journalism, which lends itself well to the work that I'm in now, fact-finding, trying to figure out what's going on with our systems. I think you and I knew each other when I was at the Tulsa Regional Chamber and I was vice president of government affairs over healthcare policy. That's where I, that's exactly where I met you at. And I remember at the time we were trying to figure out what legislatively needs to happen with mental health and what do we do and who do we go to but the great Mike Bros. And so we, I know, talked a lot about that legislative needs back in those days. Right. Yeah. And then the Zero Foundation convened the Tulsa 10-Year Mental Health Plan. And I know you were a part of that. And it was, I was. Mm-hmm. in collaboration with the University of Tulsa and the Urban Institute. And they came and said, here are some things that the community needs to do to make things better for people with mental health and addiction treatment needs in, in Tulsa over the next 10 years. And one of those things was you've got to talk about the funding for these services. You've got to talk about how you can access them or not access them. You've got to talk about policy. Right. How do you do that? You got to go to Oklahoma City. You got to talk about state issues and, and, and federal issues. And you've got to have a neutral body of, of work around data and collaboration. And so you've got to have an organization that does all that. Right. Cue Healthy Minds. And so Zero Foundation came and spoke with me because I was a, a lobbyist at the Capitol with some knowledge, although not much, on mental health issues because of my work at the Chamber. And but, was, but your but your gen, j- journalism background really helped you. I, I didn't know that about you, and I, now that makes sense to how your mind works. That gave me get to know you a little bit. It's helped me to to learn from people who really know the issue well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So go ahead, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I wanted you to continue to talk about the development, how that all led up from from you know uh, Tulsa Chamber to Executive Director of Healthy Minds, and how that all came to be. Continue. Yeah, you know, I think early on with Healthy Minds, our directive from our funder was get in the bathtub, splash around, see if the water hits anything good. You know, what really needs to be done in this area? And we've evolved since those days where we had one and two people. We've got 14 now, and we've got two offices in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Oh, wow. We've successfully run legislation for three straight legislative sessions. We've brought in tens of millions of dollars from the the public mental health system. We've passed some of the most transformative legislation for people who have commercial health insurance plans and need access to care in the country here in Oklahoma as a result of this work. And we're now an organization that's working on systems change. We think we can end untreated mental illness and addiction in Oklahoma. An amazing goal to have. And how do you how do you how do you do that? Well, we benefit from COVID, and I hate to say that. I mean, awareness of mental health and addiction issues skyrocketed during the pandemic. I couldn't agree more. The data show that one in two of us had a, experienced a mental health issue during the pandemic, depression, anxiety, much less serious mental illness, and had something in our families. 
I walk the halls of the Capitol every week and legislators tell me direct personal stories of, hey, this happened with me, my son, my aunt, you name it. They all, everybody, both sides of the aisle, everybody understands this. Mental health is not a personality issue. Mental health is a health issue. It's a health issue. And just like you might scrape your knee, just like you might have, have diabetes and you're not afraid to talk about it, you know, we have things that we need to talk about. And the systems are not set up for one in two Oklahomans having a mental health need and needing treatment. They're not. Totally overwhelmed by what happened during the pandemic. And everybody sees that. Everybody is seeing an instance or has an instance, an example of, I can't get into a therapist. It's going to take six months. Right. Everybody's got a waiting list. And then when I do... My insurance won't cover it. I mean, these are experiences that people have, and it's right. become very real. So you have a policy organization like Healthy Minds come in and say, you know, we've looked at the evidence, we've looked at what they do in other states. Here's a, here's something that we can do to make things better for people. And everybody's receptive to that conversation. So you're talking about, when you say everybody, you're talking, if you think about it in the context of, the, of our state legislature, you're talking about House, Senate, Democrat, Republican, both parties. Both parties, both chambers, the governor's office, you know, Sarah Stitt, the first lady, is a big advocate for mental health issues. Right. But but also little P policy. And what I mean by that is city managers and councils and police departments and schools and everybody's seeing the results of untreated mental illness in our communities. Everybody's dealing with this. Nobody wants people to go to jail and cost extra dollars and have poorer outcomes when you just need treatment. Right. These are complex systems. They've been developed for decades, as you well know. So communities want to work with us and work with partners. Now in a way that we haven't seen, I mean, people have been talking about this for a long time, but the urgency to do something, both in the legislature and our communities, is huge. Yeah. And so uh, so you, part of your role there as executive director of Healthy Minds is still, there's still a, a lobbyist component to the work that you have to do, I would assume. There's definitely a lobbyist component to the work that we do. Policy is... In terms of big P policy, legislative policy is probably about half of what we do. The other half is community. But I'm a registered lobbyist. We have a contract lobbyist. We staff the Legislative Mental Health Caucus in the legislature, which launched three years ago with about 30 members. They meet regularly, talk about issues. So these issues are becoming a bigger deal at the Capitol, and Healthy Minds is there to help lawmakers find solutions for the challenges that they have identified. Yeah, I think sometimes for our listeners, sometimes the word lobbyist brings up negative connotations. But in my work at Mental Health Association, I know that one of the roles of a lobbyist is a lot of times legislators are sometimes asked or commonly asked to vote on things that they really don't know what, even what sometimes what they're voting on. And so a really important role for a lobbyist is to be a, a conduit of information, providing that and helping educate the legislator to under, better understand what they're voting on for or against is it concerns mental health. Is, is that, that? That's great context and background. Thanks, Mike. I'd sometimes forget that people don't, people view that profession in a certain way who aren't in the building a lot. But I, I'm a registered lobbyist, which just means that I work with legislators a lot. And you want to be ethical and report that you have interests and in, in alignment with a certain perspective. I think what happens at the Capitol, you have lobbyists who represent a commercial interest, like an industry. You have lobbyists who represent a, like a nonprofit interest in mental health association and other groups like that. But you have, but many of those lobbyists also represent organizations that do have a financial stake in the game. You know, they get Medicaid billing, or they. they so there is a certain element of of that there. But within a group like Healthy Minds, we have no interest in anything other than the data. We aren't aligned with any particular interest or 
provider or a payer. And I think legislators appreciate that. You know, we talk a lot about sometimes it's a cliche. Sometimes we hope that it isn't. But we talk about data informed care. And for our listeners, I think, and again, you know, jump in here on this, Zach, but I think it's about, you know, really analyzing what does the data, is it telling us, what is it showing, and then taking and in, in analyzing that information and then letting that then start to formulate itself into policy, policy, suggest, policy suggestions, policy ideas, policy transformation. Am I, am I in the ballpark there? That is the great unifier. I mean, I've seen conversations that have lagged on for decades with different groups pointing fingers at each other saying this is the problem or you're the problem or that's the problem. But when you bring data, everybody can agree on the data. I mean, you can't really argue with it. So I've seen that transform communities. I mean, in Edmond, we've been working on a community strategic plan for mental health that has resulted in the first year of about $10 million of new investment to new mental health facilities it's not that nobody agreed that those things were needed. It's that now we could define the need and where the need was, and you can work with state and philanthropic groups to, to get funding to, to to work on those needs. And that also helps elected officials when their constituents are asking why why this or why this expenditure. It allow it gives the the elected officials something to stand on to say, well, here is what the data shows. They don't have time to go out there and get that data a lot of times, but healthy minds, you guys are helping giving that data so they can make informed decisions, form votes, if you will. That's kind of the part of the process, right? Absolutely, and analyze what that data means for their constituents. Yeah, and and be able to answer to and explain to their constituents, and so that gives them, you know, in the parlance of our day, some political cover sometimes. Whether regardless of what party it is, both parties have to ad- address that sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, are you is is Healthy Minds? Are you a five hundred one c three or a five hundred one c four? We're a C three. We're a part of Tulsa Community Foundation. Actually, you are a part of Tulsa Community Foundation. Okay, so you operate under under their three their five hundred one C three. Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay, that's good information. And so that their their board of directors is your board of directors is how that's set up. Okay, that's how it works. Now, when you say you employ now you have two offices, employee fourteen, t- talk to us. And of course, one of my former students was a fellow there, Joy, who by the way was one of our podcast guest, but she loved her time there. And But talk about what 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 do their days look like? What are they working on? How did they go about doing their work in terms of research, data analysis? How does that all work to get work in there? Yeah, I mean, it, the value of working at Healthy Minds, I think the interesting part of working at Healthy Minds is that every day is different, is that depending on where your focus is, you might be, and, and this might sound boring to a lot of listeners, behind a computer looking at studies that have been done, you know, in other communities and what's been successful. But it might also look like facilitating or informing a community group that has a police chief and a mayor and a legislator and a mental health provider at the table, trying to find out what the best solution is for people. It might involve talking with people with lived experience and and getting their perspective, which is incredibly important when you're talking about how policy impacts people. You got to talk to people who are impacted impacted, by that policy. Yeah. So it's, it's really collaborative work. It's really data-driven work. We, we think of ourselves as the biggest nerds in the room, but also with, with, with a heart. I mean, nerds with a heart. We yeah. collaborate. We want, yeah. we want there to be an impact. Yeah. You know, that I think for our listeners, I mean, for people, the people who out there who know me know that I've never, ever been accused of being a 
data analysis. Now, I like data. I try to use data, what have you. But to go and really spend time, like you say, in front of those screens and digging down and researching wasn't really my forte, although I really appreciated it. And I just want our listeners to know how badly we need that piece of this that we've been trying to, you know, I spent most of my career at being a mental health advocate. Also, I don't want us to forget about substance abuse here, but, you know, to be a a mental health advocate and, you know, to be able to advocate, and and I wasn't ever bashful about what I was interested in or what I was trying to push and had a lot of success, but I have to admit, true confession time here, I didn't always have that kind of data behind me. Sometimes I, I was doing it out there anecdotally, well, yeah, you said talking to people lived experience, that was a lot of it. But you, but there really is a lot of research out there. There is a lot of studies. There are a lot of things that have been tried and, and failed and succeeded and that we can learn from and draw from as we create our own experiences, our own data here. But that is what this is. I think you guys are really filling in a place that's been a missing piece I would have liked to have thought the Mental Health Association, we did some of that. We had some of that going on, but not anything to the extent of what you guys are doing in Healthy Minds. And you you all were helping people directly, too, <laughs> that, and let's not forget that component, because we don't really direct people. You don't really. You're, that's, I think that's important for our listeners to know. You're, what Healthy Minds does isn't you're not actually working directly with people. Now, you may interview people. You may gather information. But as far as the service delivery, and like you said, Mental Health Association, we were actually in very involved in the service delivery. But, but man, I was... I'm jealous of what you guys are doing because of how badly it's needed and how it made me. One of my last things before the pandemic, you and I worked on a little advocacy work together. I'll never forget that time you called me up at my house and said, Mike, are you like, you know what's going on here? No. Do you, are you agree with that? No. Let's, and we, you remember that? We joined forces. We don't need to necessarily talk about what that was right now, but that was how we could come together and, and we were able to move the needle a little bit on that right before COVID. That's right. Yeah, it's a good point. We work on systems. We work on making systems better for people. But, you know, to the point about data, this issue seems so overwhelming to people. Everybody knows that so much needs to be done, and every story you bring up is another layer of something that needs to be done. But the reality is we know what needs to be done to make systems better. We know where the low-hanging fruit These issues have decades of research behind them. What we need in Oklahoma is a group that can sort of shine a light on a path forward. And that's what Healthy Minds has tried to do. We have a five-pronged strategic action plan that we work on at the community level and with legislators to try to make the mental health system equal with the physical health care system. You can shine that light. You can show people what to do. People want to do something. You just have to make it less overwhelming for them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, I teach young undergraduate social work students out at Oral Roberts University as an adjunct professor out there. And it's really interesting with this young generation that I have contact with about every day. They, I find where when I went to um, social work education, everybody wanted to do the direct practice clinical, clinical work. But I'm finding this younger generation is really interested in policy, data analysis, research. Do you, do you see that in your, in your travels and your work and your hiring? Yeah, I think people are really interested in in systems change work. It's a little bit more esoteric than the direct service work, but people kind of like moving the puzzle pieces around to see how you can make a better picture. That's what we do. Yeah, I try to, you know, like, you know, if you can affect change at a higher systems level, 
people all down the line get benefit from that. And sometimes we're, I try to teach my students sometimes, you got to, you may be working face to face with a client, but you have to see them in this larger systemic context. And when you start seeing the same problems that the p- different people are experiencing over and over again, hopefully that'll suggest to you, maybe there's something in this system that's not working. Yeah. Yeah. And really going back to our strategic plan, it starts for us at the primary care level. It starts with the place that you're told your whole life, this is how you enter the healthcare system. But mental health has always been this sort of asterisk, separate thing out to the side. Your primary care doctor may not have been able to connect you with services and they've been getting better as of recent times, but you have to have an integrated healthcare system and it starts there. Yeah, and that is, for our listeners, integrated healthcare, it is a huge thing. And historically, mental health and physical health have been in separate silos, and that is beginning to change. So when you go to your primary care doctor and they ask you questions about your mood, your your if you're experiencing any depression or anxiety or any sort of other sort of issues that may be more mental health related, that has to do with that's all part of healthcare integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a horrible statistic nationally. Nearly half, and I believe it's 47% of people who have died by suicide had seen a primary care doctor in the last month of their life. So something was happening that was missed. Yeah, you know, I, I used to run into that, some of that data. I used to use that in many, many talks. That was That's a very important statistic, and that really can kind of get people's attention. Also, I always like to remind our listeners, and anytime I get the chance to speak, that we have we hear about homicides in this country, but we have almost, almost three times as many suicides in this country every year than that we have homicides, and they're all tragic. It just speaks to that there's people all around us in major distress who can be helped and benefit from mental health care who don't get it for all kinds of reasons. Stigma, and I think you brought up something earlier, Zach, that I think that again back to the pandemic, and you know, you apologize for anything good, but I call it some of the silver linings that had, did come out of the pandemic and that people were talking about mental health. And it wasn't any, it, you know, we live in an us and them world when it comes to mental health. It's not us, it's them. But that started to sort of change in people who started to say, hey, it's us. And I never have really known a time in my whole over 40 years of practice where people are talking about mental health and their own mental health like they are right now. Do you guys find that over at Healthy Minds? Absolutely. But it's created an environment where change can happen, which is the important part. That's great. What are the, some of the initiatives that you guys are working on right now at Healthy Minds? Yeah. I mean, so we just talked about primary care. We're running legislation this year so that both mental health practitioners and primary care doctors can actually be reimbursed for their services if they collaborate together on a patient's needs. About 60% of the time, a mental health condition should and can be treated in the primary care setting. It's not always effective. If it's not done right, we, we need to work on the quality, but it can be treated there. And so you need to have those funding streams available. Believe it or not, if you tried to do that right now and you had a certain payer, um, not not even billable for those primary care. So you're not going to get that service. We need to be screening in primary care offices and doing models like screening brief intervention referral treatment, ESPERT, which is a wonky term, but it's a model that's out there. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. Not always utilized. Yeah. Yeah. So primary care, we need to talk about schools because most mental illness, serious mental illness sets on by adolescents. And so we, we know that, hey, we, nobody really wants schools to be medical providers and schools don't want to be medical providers. But we know that 80% of 
children who access mental health services do, th- do so through their schools. So we have to do something about that because you're seeing behavioral issues manifest out of mental health issues and kids are getting kicked out of school and things like that should never happen. That sets you up for a lifetime of failure uh, because that system has failed you at that point. So if we have a way to systematically, systematically involve the parents and get children and families to the appropriate level of care because those services do exist in the community, but they're not, you know, sometimes it's the wild west in schools as to whether you actually get those services, depending on which school you're at. We want every school to always have those abilities to get those children to the right level of care. So there's a number of initiatives. We've gone after federal grants. We've gotten millions of dollars for schools. We've passed legislation that requires that every school district in Oklahoma have a real written agreement with their community mental health provider around addressing student suicide and catching those needs before it escalates, hopefully, to a suicide. Hopefully before it escalates to a suicide. Right. So now every school district in Oklahoma is aware of this. We've had community mental health center CEOs call me and saying, what's going on? I'm getting calls from the superintendent out in this district. We've never even had a relationship with them, but they're calling me asking for my services now. Prior to passing this bill, we had superintendents say, well, you can't do that because there's not a mental health resource in my community. That is wrong. There's a mental health resource available in every county in Oklahoma. Right. So we're connecting those those systems, which is really cool to see. I think you're going to see in years to come a lot of change in the student mental health side because of that. Yeah, I think it's a really big thing because in my work at Mental Health Association, I know that when I would try to talk to schools, a lot of times even the thinking was, we don't have those kind of problems in our schools, is if the administrator would, it would reflect badly on them if they recognized it. And and the other thing I would try to remind uh, school administrators, teachers about is that if your if your children are not having experiencing good mental health, no matter how bright they are, they cannot perform at peak performance in their academics. And so the chicken and the egg, which came first? Well, I would argue that you've got to make sure that you address the mental health care needs of your students. And then that then has a better chance that they can perform academically. But if they are distressed, doesn't matter how bright they are, they're gonna their academic performance is going to be impacted. That's been a hard thing kind of for historically for our schools and our educators to kind of get their minds around. But I think it's starting to happen. It's like you guys at Healthy Minds are really playing a part on that. Well, educators have always been asked to do more than they should, right? I mean, in that profession, you really feel like you're just the whole weight of the world and every aspect of a student's needs is putting on you. And you're, and you're, and you're sitting there going, I trained to be a teacher, not, not a therapist, not a... But the reality is there are systems that can come in and help Kill. you. Right. They don't have to be everything, but you have to have those systems really connected. There is, to your point, there's a, a large-scale national study that's probably one of the most comprehensive that's been done on this. It showed for students in schools with appropriate mental health supports, there is an average of 11 percentage points higher performance on academic tests than students in schools without appropriate mental health support. So it's a pretty clear-cut argument. If you want to achieve academically and be on the right path to success in life, your school better have appropriate mental health supports available. For our listeners, guys, you just heard what data can do. Now, I've been making that argument for a long time, but I had no data. You just heard, this is what Healthy Minds brings it is, to be able to cite that data. That's a significant in terms of a school system that doesn't have that and one that we're able to get the care and you see that much of a difference in academic performance. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. You know, another thing you'd ask that we're working on, uh, workforce. We don't have enough clinicians in Oklahoma to meet the need and the need's going up. 
but the number of clinicians actually are going down. If you read, there was a recent legislative report that showed the higher educations now, institutions now in Oklahoma are turning out record low in the last 10 years, record low numbers of degrees for mental health aligned professions. Why are those degree programs going down? Well, a number of years ago, we deinvested in higher education. We have since reinvested in higher education, but in targeted ways that have really emphasized like engineering and, and technology and things like that. So the mental health degree programs never really kind of got back up. We've got to address that. These are good paying jobs. You can make seventy dollars to $90,000 as a therapist now in a community mental health setting. I'm not saying it's an easy job, but it's a good job and people need those services. So we've got to address the workforce issue. Healthy Minds is currently proposing legislation and funding for loan repayment incentives for people to get into these professions, for providers to be able to recruit from out of state or upskill their employees to higher levels of licensure, things like that. We're working on licensure reform ideas. So there's some things that we can do on the workforce side. One of the reasons why we don't have the workforce, you could say it's chicken and the egg. I did just mention you can make a lot of money as a community mental health worker, but if you're a private practitioner, you, it's hard. It's hard unless you're taking self-pay clients who are going to pay $150 or more an hour. If you have commercial health insurance and you need to rely on that health insurance plan for your mental health services, depending on who you have, what insurer you have, your chances are much lower of actually being able to rely on that plan and get care in an affordable way. This is parity. This is, we think, is the crux of a lot of issues across the country. Lots of things go into parity. Parity comes into play when you are in an inpatient substance use disorder treatment setting and your doctor says, you might die if we leave. You've only been here two or three days. We need to keep you a little bit longer. And your insurance company says, sorry, we've determined it's not medically necessary for you to be longer. What would make it medically necessary? Well, do they have a gun in their hand or are they pointing it at their head? Okay, that's pretty extreme. Do they do that on cardiology patients? When a heart doctor says, a cardiologist says, you are going to die if we let you leave the hospital after three days, your insurance company is probably going to let you stay. That's a parody issue. I know it's wonky, but you just saw two different examples of a mental health condition being treated differently than a physical health care condition. Treated differently and resourced differently. There is some data that show that in Oklahoma, Behavioral health providers get about 27% less reimbursement from commercial health plans on average than physical health care providers for similar billing codes. Which is frustrating to me because I worked on mental health parity for my almost my entire career, and it was passed, I think in 08, for mental health parity at the federal level, and but we still it's still not really happening. We're still working on that. It's incredibly difficult. Much of the information you need to verify parity compliance is considered proprietary information by an insurance company and so not necessarily available. We've worked upon legislation for several years now that have put Oklahoma on the forefront of making sure that parity is happening, but we do have a long way to go. There is a nationally an issue called ghost networks where you might be trying to find a provider on your network directory and you're calling phone numbers and nobody's there. The psychiatrist may be deceased or no longer accepting patients, or maybe you were calling a mental health practitioner and on your network directory, it's actually, it ended up being a physical therapist. All right, that's not what you need. We did a study in Oklahoma, you can find on our website, healthymanspolicy.org, where we looked at the insurance networks in Oklahoma. We actually tested the networks. We called the providers listed on the directories, and we found that we could only reach about 30, 35% of the providers listed on directories. Actually, if you look at the whole picture, only about 
I should say this, about 30% of the time, it was a disconnected phone line when you tried to call a provider or some other reason it basically effectively that provider didn't exist. So these are massive challenges when you consider the fact that 2 million Oklahomans have commercial health insurance plans. More than half the state has a commercial health insurance plan because you're employed and you're doing all the things that everybody wants you to do. But you have less access often to mental health care than if you were on Medicaid. And we think that's a problem. And to the credit of the insurance industry, you know, we've really worked with them legislatively on solutions and they've come to the table and they've been at the table trying to find solutions. These are really systemic issues. I and mean, it's not like there's malice necessarily going on all the time. I mean, it is years the systems have developed and they've developed out of a framework where back in the day, mental health was considered a pseudoscience. Now mental health, there's all kinds of science around it. Our technology's advanced. We can measure what's going on in the brain. We know it's just as valid as other kinds of medicine. And our systems are still trying to catch up to that. Yeah. Do, do, will, will the use of the health information exchange here in Oklahoma, some of the things that are going there, can, can that be of help to what, the things that you're talking about right there? Yeah, I think the health information exchange is a complicated issue. I think it it is absolutely necessary in many cases for a physician to know, for example, what kind of medication people are on. Right. We saw it on the opioid crisis, right? Before we knew there was a prescription monitoring database, people were, you know, their addictions were, were in full blown. People were dying right. at record rates because you were being, you were pill shopping and different things like that. We don't want that to happen. We want treatment for those situations. I think that's an example where data and information sharing was really helpful and really curbing the overdose crisis that we had in Oklahoma at the time back in like 2017. But for the HI, we want to respect privacy. You know, I think there have been some robust debates about privacy. And right now they're hot. But I think coming to some good solutions around, you know, it's an opt-in now, not an opt-out. Right, right. There were some questions. Okay, if I have to sign an opt-out form, then I'm signaling that I'm in therapy. Right. Just by nature of how... And I think the legislature and the state has seen the wisdom of that and said, okay, no, it's opt-in now. And we get that. We understand that. And so those kinds of issues, I think, are are coming to a close. There's still some misinformation, I think, about what's going on. But I think generally, as long as patient privacy rights are respected, the HIE is going to be really transformative. I think so, too. I'm actually helping to work on an informational program upcoming in April 27th for our listeners to get some of this information out to mental health professionals because I'm running into colleagues are calling me and the misinformation about all that, uh, they, they, you know, that you have to opt in versus opt out. And there's a lot of misinformation about that. We're, I don't want to get too sidetracked on that, but I think the the use of the health information exchange in the end when things get sorted out can be really helpful to some of the things that you're talking about in terms of a more integrated healthcare model that we're hoping to, that you guys are trying to promote and, and get developed here in Oklahoma. What what are some of the other things that you've, I just want to give you some plenty of space here to, you know, voice and not be afraid to, you know, speak your mind, Zach, in terms of what you hope maybe you haven't got to yet, but what is, what do you guys look at over the horizon and see where you guys want to go with Healthy Minds and the work you're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, we've seen a lot of fruit from partnerships with treatment providers who bring us in to help them, you know, make sure that their treatment offerings are meeting the needs of their people. Often it takes a third party to come in and and they open their doors and they say, look at us, make sure we're, we're," and I think there's going to be a need for that kind of technical assistance is what we would call that. Okay. You know, this is hard stuff. Mental health historically and treatment practices for mental health have suffered from lack of what we would call fidelity 
quality to the model? Are things going the way, are, are this, is this system in this model working the way that it should? Right. This is difficult work. Many of our providers deal with people with very complex needs. And so there is a demand and increasing demand for those technical assistance services. I think there's increasing demand for communities to understand how to make their systems better. And here's a prime example, 988. Wonderful that you can call a three-digit phone number and get connected to a therapist, talk on the phone. Wonderful that if you need it, 988 can dispatch a mobile crisis responder to you. Wonderful that if you need it, you can go to a crisis center. And as a state builds those out across the state, you can go to a facility to be assessed and and get connected to appropriate follow-up services. That is transformational in many areas of our state. Now, urban, our urban areas have had things like that for a while, but many rural areas have not. So right. Wonderful. What happens, though, when somebody calls 911, do you always get the right response? There are instances where two people, and I was recently at a couple of conferences and, and heard very similar examples of this, two people, very similar needs, addiction needs, encounter law enforcement, felony charge, and their life is completely disrupted because of a felony charge because of their addiction, simply because it was law enforcement and not a mental health responder who happened to respond to that situation. Another instance of a person who maybe was high on the street or something and a mental health responder got there and was able to get them to treatment and services. Employed, wonderful life, children, family. I mean, these are real examples that, that people show, you know, contrasting just because of the response. But the reality is, you know, law enforcement, we need them to solve our crimes and fight our crimes. We don't need them to deal with people who have illnesses. In, in, yeah. and, and they don't want to do that either. So what communities can do is, is figure out how to best align their law enforcement resources with their mental health response resources at a community and a city level at an, with 911 dispatch and with 988 there at the table and bringing everybody together so that we see and can track over time is the system working the way that it's supposed to work. We have a, we have a really big problem in Oklahoma. We have models. We don't have a system. We have good models, models that are doing wonderful work, but leave gaps all over the place in terms of the patient experience because you didn't happen to access it the exact way you needed to access it to get the benefit of that model. Well, that's on us as leaders and communities. That's not on our people. That's on, that's on the communities. So I think you're seeing a lot of communities. Tulsa is doing some really good work right now on that with the mayor's office, GT Bynum, Healthy Minds and partners around the table. Edmund is doing some wonderful work on that right now. Communities like Barbable has set up, you know, co-responder models too. And, you know, I think there's some good things maybe on the horizon in Oklahoma City as well. But this, the next phase of mental health crisis response is a community one. And we think Healthy Minds is here to help these communities do this well. I think policy-wise, We've got to focus on workforce development and parity. We've invested wonderful dollar amounts, historic dollar amounts in new facilities across the state. ARPA investments, you know, we're building a new Griffin facility in the Oklahoma City area, Tulsa Community, Tulsa Behavioral Health Center, which is a, just a wonderful staff in a decrepit facility. Right. Getting a new state-of-the-art facility in downtown Tulsa that will not be stigmatized. We'll have every resource and look exactly like you would expect a top-tier medical establishment to look. We've got to staff them. We've got to staff these facilities. Right. Community mental health, we've got new models to fund them in ways that they've never been funded before. After Medicaid expansion, there's now all this money and, and resources available to help people. We've got to staff them. Everybody's reporting these shortages. We can do things like loan repayment. We can do things like work with higher ed and licensure boards to make sure that degree programs are there. 
we need to work on making sure that that workforce is culturally and linguistically capable to serve the people that they're serving. So that if you're in a community of color, you have a therapist of color and you have a therapist who can maybe talk, speak your language. I mean, it's very important. These are some new things we've got to start working on over the horizon or we will not, we will ultimately just be unsuccessful in solving this issue. I think this may be an extra credit assignment to my current students to listen to this. I try to tell them there are jobs. This is a good profession. This is there are employment opportunities. You can make a good living. You can be well paid, what have you. But we need more of them. I think I'll probably be having to assign this to listen to this podcast so they can hear that. They hear it from me. It's nice to let them hear it from someone else. And, I, you know, this is a uh, the workforce issue, and of course, my whole life, adult life, has been dedicated to this. I'm on, I'm in the the latter fourth quarter of my professional career, but I'm trying to give back as much as I can to help these students. But I'm it's so encouraging to hear that Healthy Minds is really working and trying to address the workforce issues in terms of things like helping with loan repayment opportunities, investment, scholarships, what have you. And so that that students might engineer. We need more engineers. Absolutely. But we also need mental health professionals to be able to be well-trained, to be able to staff these services that you're talking about, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just one last word here. We're getting ready to wrap up, but I want to give you a chance to anything. You know, this is a great opportunity to share anything that you'd like to share, Zach. Is there anything that maybe I've missed or haven't asked about that you just really are just chomping to get the word out there? Anything at all, feel free to jump right in there, Zach. Yeah, I would just reiterate these problems do seem overwhelming and, and incredibly challenging, especially if you're somebody who has lived the system and you've seen you've run into wall after wall and you've had letdown after letdown. Those are real situations. Those are difficult situations. But the future can be bright. We can make a bright future. We can make a better system. It's going to start with making sure your voice is heard. It's going to start with making sure you're involved with an advocacy group. Maybe it's mental health association. Maybe it's another group. It's even if you're not involved with the group, make sure you know who your legislator is, invite them out to coffee, get to know them. We have to do that. We have to show in every community in Oklahoma that there are people willing to talk about it, willing to say, hey, we've got to do better for our communities. Nobody wants there to be a drug problem in Oklahoma. Nobody wants there to be a drug problem. We need to agree, though, that the solution is treatment. It's care over cups. It's better, more effective systems. And we can't do that without people who are family members, who care about people who have experienced these issues and people in, re in recovery going to legislators and going to policymakers. Talk about it. Talk about it on social media. Get on our website, healthymindspolicy.org. Look at our research. If you need to find something that can help you have those conversations, that data is there. We're a resource for you. And, and just help us sp spread that message.